This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, we celebrate both the eighth anniversary of the acclaimed film, Most Likely to Succeed, and the hundredth episode of this podcast. And my guest, of course, is Ted Dintersmith. Ted first came to Hawaii, where I live and produce this show, back in May of 2016. It was the last stop on his 50-state tour, which began after he screened Most Likely to Succeed for the first time at the Sundance Film Festival. Ted thought he would spend one day in Hawaii and, exhausted after a year of travel, head off on a well-deserved vacation. Instead, I took Ted on a multi-island, six-day tour of imagination, creativity, and innovation in Hawaii's public, charter, and private schools. It has been my honor and privilege to work alongside Ted ever since. He has been back to the islands 13 times and invested in helping us reimagine this thing we call school. That he would be my hundredth guest was always a given. The ways Ted has changed the conversation about education in the United States is impossible to calculate. Ted had an unusual vantage point on the future of our children and this nation. He spent his career in the world of innovation and venture capital, and his track record there suggests he might know a bit about it. Over the past decade, he has immersed himself in the world of education. He doesn't claim to have the expertise our classroom teachers have, and he respects their insights, celebrates them, actually. But he has insights into the world our children will live in as adults, and the ways this future ought to affect the way we educate our children. He fights every day to do what he can to help give young learners a creative, uplifting education that prepares them to lead lives of purpose. Ted knows the challenges are serious, but so are the opportunities. At whatschoolcouldbe.org, Ted writes, and I quote, During the 2015-2016 school year, I went to all 50 states, visiting some 200 schools. I was stunned by the innovative classrooms and schools I found across the country. My book, titled What School Could Be? Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America, brings these stories to readers. I highlight the common elements of the powerful learning experiences I observed and the ways leaders can change schools at scale by putting in place the conditions that let teachers and students thrive." End quote. Inspired by Ted's book, Ryan Ozawa and I, some three years ago, gave birth to the What School Could Be podcast, which is underwritten by Ted. For his generosity, I am forever grateful. And now, here's my conversation with my friend, colleague, collaborator, and patron, Ted Dintersmith.
Ted, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Well, I am thrilled to be here on podcast number 100. Yes, it's the 100th episode, Ted. I can't even believe that we've gotten to this point. How did we get to this point? Well, you know, I'm sure you couldn't believe we would, but I have to tell you, everybody that knows you could absolutely believe (laughs) you get to this point. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, Ted, normally I spend time in the first part of the conversation asking questions that allow listeners to get to know you. But instead of surfing the shore break waves, if you will, we're going to get on our longboards and take on big waves at Waimea Bay right out of the gate here. So if folks want to know more about you, there's lots about you online. And one of the things that I would direct them to is the PBS Hawaii Long Story Short interview, which is absolutely wonderful for getting to know you, Ted Dintersmith. Excellent. I I am easy to Google. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you sure are. (laughs) So noting that way back when you served under President Obama as an appointment to the United Nations General Assembly, let's for the moment make you a a senior advisor to President Biden, who's about to order all troops out of Afghanistan for good. And there is strong intel, Ted, that the Taliban will destroy any progress made by Afghans towards expanding education, especially for young women. So my question to you is, what obligation does the United States have towards those citizens and other countries, mostly women, who are denied access to education? And I wonder, Ted, how your thinking has shifted on this, if it has, over eight years since most likely to succeed was first screened and since those years when you served at the United Nations. I'd start by saying, you know, when I was at the UN, I came to appreciate how many people, including people in positions of considerable influence and power, view education as a commodity. You Mm. you would hear this phrase around the UN of, today there are a billion young adults not getting an education. We want to get that down to 500 million or 250 million or what, 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 what. And, And you say, well, what does it mean for a child to have the kind of education that will let them move forward in life creating and pouncing on opportunities, Mm. that kind of gets lost in the noise. And so I feel like until we get the high level issue right, which is how do you deliver to kids an education that serves them long-term? You know, we have as many problems, I think, in parts of the U.S. as they have in Afghanistan. Now there's violence and brutality there. There's no question, Mm. pain, suffering. We do a lot in Ukraine. They're going through hell and worse. But I feel like when we take our eye off the big focus, which is what education needs to be to mm. prepare young kids for thriving, purposeful, happy lives, you know, we're just tinkering around the edges or moving pieces on a chessboard with no real plan or purpose, thinking that, oh my gosh, we got to another 50 million kids in this decade. Isn't that amazing progress? So in your mind then, what has to happen before you actually address that question of, for example, what's happening with with the Taliban even today, because that hypothetical is actually real, that you have to get into the reimagine education conversation first, because the purpose of the thing gets lost as you're as you're counting the numbers, if you will. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, the phrase I use frequently is, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Mm -hmm. So if you just think having kids in a school sitting four behind a small wooden desk, having somebody talk at them with a colonial, Mm -hmm. obsolete model of education, are you really changing those kids' lives? And I want a world where every kid 
has access to the resources that let them mm. tap into their intrinsic motivation and curiosity and move forward. We can talk about the film that I backed that I didn't think ultimately was that successful a film, but School in the Cloud, where mm. Sugata Mitra was trying to help kids in rural India. Mm. Now, at least rural India is receptive to kids being educated, whereas in Afghanistan, there's hostility. But you saw this very different model of letting kids identify what they wanted to learn and go deep with it. Right. And the film, as flawed as it was, gave you a sense of when you put in place those conditions, there are very cost-effective, highly powerful ways for kids to develop skills that move them forward in life. That's the world I think we need to be headed toward broadly. Mm. Every country, every state of the U.S., everywhere. That's awesome. So perfect segue to this next part, which is actually about your two kids. So you have, Ted, two awesome grown children, Gibson and Sterling. And I want to use their life journeys as a basis for two pretty specific questions about education and your perspective on how learning works. So first, over the years, you have shared a great deal with me about Gibson's life and work. And I wonder if you could talk about Gibson's journey, but in the context of him as an object lesson, perhaps, in why our American college or bust ethos is not good for our kids, especially as they move from purpose to passion, as he has, for sure. Yeah. So you have to promise they won't hear this podcast because they generally <laughs> said, do not talk about us anywhere in public. So, <laughs> oh, no. Okay. So fair enough. You know, we had some interesting, for me personally, transformational, but I think also for our entire family experiences early, where we went rogue from the conventional system and did a lot of homeschooling. Mm. And it wasn't year in and year out. It was probably for each of our kids two, two and a half years out of their first eight, let's say. And when we started that process, I was like the normal parent, right? Mm. Everything that they're asked to do makes sense. And so we're like getting back in the day, CD-ROMs and worksheets and, you know, that whole morass of, of materials that, that we call curriculum. And I'm like the guy on task. I've got to make sure my kids march through it. Right. And, and a couple of things were clear. One is they had no interest in it. The second was a lot of it. I looked at it and said, like, why, why does anybody actually have to do this? This doesn't make any sense to me. And the third was just the dramatic difference in learning paces when you shifted from here's what school says you have to do to what do you want to do? And, and I think we as a family and, and with my two kids, there was a lot of emphasis on what's interesting to you not what you need to do to get a good grade. And mm. that carries through to this day. I mean, our son, the other deal, which just always alarms parents when I say this, but I made a deal with both kids that I would never look at their high school report cards. Mm. And I said to them, you know, this is between you and school. These are the ramifications if you do better or you do worse. But I'm out of it at this point. You know, you're 15, 16, 17, you know, you make your decisions and you figure out how seriously you want to take it. And our son jumped on that, you know, like, <laughs> like, okay, you know, and I felt like my big role, and I tried hard to do this, was to make sure, irrespective of what school was telling the child, that they wouldn't lose their confidence, that, that if school was saying you're a mediocre student, that they would understand to a large extent the problem with school and not them. And I feel like that's an important opportunity and obligation of every parent is to keep your kid curious, keep your kid confident, because a confident, curious kid 
mm-hmm. will make their way forward in life. And a kid that feels, and this happens not in a few cases, this happens broadly for millions and millions of kids, is that school will deliver them a day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out message that in some way, shape or form, they lack proficiency. Mm-hmm. And kids get that message. And I think when a kid bakes in a view of themselves that says, I'm not that smart, I'm not gifted, I'm not particularly talented, you know, it's tragic, right? Mm-hmm. Because these kids are all gifted and talented in their own ways. And sometimes they're very unpredictable. You know, our son was growing up, I think he spent 99% of his active neuron power for 12, 13 years focused on baseball. That's mm-hmm. all he cared about. He didn't care about anything else in his life besides baseball. You know, along the way, he would take pictures and we would often say, boy, that was a really interesting angle for that picture or something. I mean, got a list of some of his early photographs or, you know, got them in a in a folder. And I said, like, you kind of have an eye for this. But that was kind of it. It was kind of in passing. And, you know, in his case, he got to college. He actually went to a college for one reason and one reason only which was he hoped he could walk onto the baseball team and they didn't even have tryouts. And he said like after a few weeks, I think it was there seven weeks, eight weeks, probably, probably went to maybe one class per week. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he just pulled the ripcord. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of parents would be aghast at that, would kind of weigh in and say, you can't do this. You've got to get that degree. You've got to do this. Got to. I get this pushback a lot, you know, like, Oh, sure, Ted, it's easier for you to tell people that their kid doesn't need to go to college, but I bet your kids did. Mm. Well, you know, I'm at, I'm at 50% on that. You know, one was seven weeks, one finished. But, you know, he sort of went forward in a way that he cared about. And he entered a field I knew nothing about. You know, like I, I have no connection. I mean, like, you know, my technical skills. I could no more create a video. I mean, maybe if my life depended, I could do something terrible. But, you know, he creates videos for, musicians, primarily rap, you know, artists, mm-hmm. and he's done well with that, but he found that, you know, mm-hmm. it's that whole thing of, is the goal of school to prepare kids for more school, which I think to a very large extent it is today, or is the goal of school to equip kids with the skills and mindsets they need to create the life they want? And, and if you view the second as being ultimately what we need to do, what we owe our kids, it completely shifts everything mm-hmm. about the way we view education and what kinds of learning challenges we want, whether we care about, you know, you got a B minus in this, why the heck didn't you get an A? You know, like it all melts away. Mm-hmm. Once you say, equip kids with the skills and mindsets so they can create the life they want. Right. So partly as a result of watching my own daughter, Emma, grow into both teacher Emma and a huge advocate for connecting kids back to nature in what ways is Sterling's life also an object lesson in what happens when young people connect with and grow passionate about the land and growing things and community farming? Like her story seems to speak to the problematic expectation and which is so embedded into our American culture and felt so deeply by our kids and also parents that they need to go to college, get that four-year degree in four years and then pursue a career. It just seems like her pathway is definitely tracking towards community farming. And I think it's just remarkable that she's doing that in her own way. You know, it's it's interesting. So I'll generalize. When I talk to adults about their kids, and this could be in private settings with friends, or it could be in large group settings where I'll ask the question, you know, most parents will say some version of, well, you know, 
what I really want. I just want them to be happy. Yeah. And I think most parents instinctively feel that, but then you see, you know, but you got to be an investment banker or you got to get a job. You got to get a high paying job. You've got to get ahead. You've got to do better. You know, it's like, it's the actions are so misaligned with that objective of wanting a kid to be happy. And in our daughter's case, you know, she generally liked the idea part of school Mm. and school came pretty easy for her. So, you know, on paper, she looked like kind of a pushing academic student, but her senior year, she was, I think the only kid in her school with a, she had a 25 hour week job as a senior in high school and just sort of over time has found her way to kind of a, what may be a lifelong love affair with nature, with soil with regenerative agriculture yeah and exactly how she takes that forward i don't know but i'll tell you she she's unbelievably frugal and one of the things that troubles me and you'll hear this from politicians that they will say and i can think of some very specific ones who said this they'll say as though this is the worst of all outcomes they will say you know this may be the first generation in our history where kids don't make as much money as their parents made. Mm, Yeah. And my response is they don't care. You know, many of these kids don't care. You know, they don't want a big house. They don't want lots of material goods. You know, our son, he has trouble filling out an address field on anything he's applying (laughs) for or doing because he has no address. You know, he kind of goes, I mean, I'm not kidding. He has no address. He goes from Airbnb to Airbnb. Right now he's in a bigger house with all his editing team on something he's doing. I say, doesn't it drive you crazy not to have a permanent place? His response is, no, I like that. Mm. You know, our daughter has a, I think she has, you'll cringe when I tell you this, but I think she has an iPhone 8, (laughs) (laughs) maybe a 7. You know, if I bring up, you know, like for a birthday or a holiday present, would you like a new iPhone? Oh, no, no. I mean, the more features it has, the more it will distract me from what I care about. and. I just look at it, like I say, go for it. You know, like, is it important as parents, as people involved with schools, as concerned citizens, is it important to empower kids with the skills and mindsets to create the life they want or to impose on them your view about the life they should have? Mm. And I just kind of go with it. You know, like, she's definitely not going to make as much money with that set of passions and interests as if she was a Morgan Stanley or Golden Sachs, but I mean, she'd be in sheer misery in that kind of environment. Right. And, you know, the life you want. And and then let me know how I can be helpful, which, by the way, in both of my kids' cases, it's basically stay away. <laughs> you know, like, mm. I mean, not stay away in a relationship, but we don't want your financial support. You know, we don't want you to call anybody on our behalf. If, even if, I mean, I can't pick up the phone and call, you know, a rap star. <laughs> That's mm. for sure. But, you know, there's sort of that fierce independence, that agency. And to me, it's just, well, we're on it is one of the books. I write about this book in my book, What School Could Be, but it was an amazing book by the father of a former NFL football quarterback. So the father is Mac Bledsoe and the quarterback was Drew Bledsoe. Right. Many people may know him, but he wrote this book called Parenting with Dignity. And Mm. and I think it warrants a sequence called Educating with Dignity. But the core message of parenting and dignity is that when you have a newborn, one day old, obviously you make 100% of the newborn's decisions. Your goal as a parent is to affect an orderly transfer of decision-making responsibility Mm -hmm. so that by the time they're 18, they make 100% of their decisions, Mm -hmm. not 100% of their low-level decisions or not 
in conjunction with you or whatever, they make 100% of their decisions. If they decide to drop out of college, that's their decision. If they decide to you know, major in art instead of accounting, that's you know, like on and on and on. They make 100% of their decisions. And I feel like the variant for education is as educators, what if our goal was to make formal education irrelevant? You know, if we equip kids with learning how to learn skills, they retain their intrinsic curiosity, mm-hmm. they have degrees of agency, do they really need formal instruction? We do live in a world where it's easier and easier to learn whatever you want on your own. Right. And I think we don't do that. I think we just say our goal, when you strip it all down, our goal is to prepare kids for the next step in education, which ultimately means that the requirements to be a PhD in a university, which by the way, there, I think last time I checked, almost no job openings at the university level for a PhD, but that kind of ripples back and is defining what our kids do in kindergarten. And to me, it makes no sense. Right. It's just, I'm thinking so much about my own daughter, Emma, and and how the work that she's doing with the Vilda School in, in Marin County in Northern California connecting kids to nature is so much like Sterling and, and like Gibson in a way, because she's just charting her own path and I'm watching it happen. And every once in a while, Ted, she'll use me as a resource, which I, I love. I think that's one of the greatest skills that you can have is when the moment arrives, you need to be able to reach out and find a resource that can help you work through something. So occasionally I'll get a call and she'll say, you know, I'm working on this. What do you think? And, and it's just really neat to be able to be a partner in that process. And it's, sounds like that's kind of what it's been with you and Gibson and Sterling along the way. Yeah, yeah, that's great. At the ultimate measure, and I haven't seen Emma for a while, but when I visualize her, the times I've met the pictures, that young woman radiates joy. Yeah, you know, like, she does. Tell me again why that isn't an amazing character trait to have in life. And, yeah. and if all of us radiated joy and all of us were committed to a greater good, which I think is absolutely what path she's on yeah that's nirvana that this is as good as it gets yeah Ted, a, a previous guest on this show provided some really interesting analysis and feedback on your acclaimed documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, which debuted at the Sundance Film Festival eight years ago this month. That, that's just amazing. I can't even believe that. And so this guest really loves the film, has screened it many times, but believes it focuses perhaps too much on the future of work, the changing economy, jobs of the future, instead of what the purpose of education is, which he argues is more about elevating voices, finding one's purpose, and and making a world that is more socially just. So I wonder what your thinking is now after more than, good Lord, must be 10,000 screenings and eight years of feedback about and reaction to most likely to succeed. Like, what is your thinking at this moment on the eighth anniversary of its debut? Well, along the way, you know, in my immersion in the world of education, I've made my share of mistakes, some quite big, but this film was not in that category. It remains, for me, a remarkable accomplishment. I give the credit to Greg Whiteley, the director. I think he ran with that film. 
he and his team, it was a team of four that were essentially filming stuff going on in school full-time for two years, you know, and he's gone on to win multiple Emmys. I, I don't think today, I doubt if anyone could get that caliber of a director and team for two years on the topic of education, but we yeah. did. Yeah. In terms of that feedback, you know, having seen the film a, a quadrillion times and you have as well, yeah. there was an intentionality of putting side by side the kids working on that wheel, which by the way, was telling the story of 12 great civilizations Right. And side by side with kids taking an ancient Greek play and recasting it in modern times and putting it on entirely student driven. So I don't see that film as being, you know, do we tee up the issues around career and work? We do. Absolutely. Do we show what kinds of advances are going to completely change the way society functions? I think the film is brilliant in that. Is this a film about kids in school learning to be accountants or taking some computer programming course or something just so they can learn how to code, which by the way, I've been on record for 10 years and more and more people are, I think, seeing it this way. Coding is a skill that's going away. But this isn't a narrowly focused career path school. These are kids diving into some of the most important factors, forms, forces that drove the future of civilization. Mm. It's interesting because when I screened the film, that film was done when the kids were all first year. So they were in ninth grade. Right. I went back and we did a screening at that school. I think it was two and a half years later. And I had a chance to talk to some of these kids. And when I asked them, which civilization did you cover? And what do you remember about that? They had vivid recollection. I mean, they were down to the specifics, right? If you go to an AP world history course and ask kids three weeks after the final exam, anything about the Mayas or the Incas or Yes, you know, like whatever, blank stares, right? Blank stares. And so, you know, I look at that and I say, like, it begs a question. And I think it does an amazing job of bringing to the forefront what it means to learn. And honestly, if you don't remember it three weeks later, to me, it's like writing an essay in the sand on a windy beach. Mm. You know, it's just gone. Mm -hmm. It's just gone. Right. And I also think with those kids, and this is a lesson I've learned in visiting so many schools and interviewing so many people, but it comes front and center in the film, is once kids get that sense that they have a superpower, yeah. that they can make a difference, that they can do things. I mean, where does somebody's sense of purpose come into play? I think people generate a sense of purpose in themselves when they realize I'm really good at something and I can use that superpower to affect positive change in our world, whether it's putting on a play about Socrates that the audience loves or designing and making real a wheel that draws on physics and, and shop and mechanical engineer. You know, I mean, it draws on a whole broad mosaic of skills beyond just understanding and developing your own theory for what caused each civilization to rise and fall. But when you then see as the film goes to great lengths to underscore it publicly exhibited in ways that inform and energize and, and inspire an audience. Yeah. You know, those kids' lives are changed. And so that to me, it's almost like those points of skepticism. I'd encourage a person to go back and watch the film again. Maybe they've, you said they've watched it several times, but, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I'm drinking the most likely to succeed Kool Aid. But I actually think we get at those issues in a mm -hmm. really important way. And not, I'll give great credit for this and a lot of credit is when we were going back and forth in the editing process, there were points where I said to him, I think you're soft peddling this. I think you need to be more emphatic. You know, he'll say, 
it's too early. We don't know if this model works. We'll have to wait 15, 20, 25 years, blah, blah, blah. Right. I say, hey, great. You know, they've gone from one school to 20. Kids all get into their, you know, by and large, their first choice colleges. If that's the path they prefer, their test scores are higher than average in California. There's a long waiting list. The teachers love to be there. There's a long waiting list for people who want to teach at high tech. Why don't we just say this is really amazing? And the more that other schools were like this, the better. And what Greg said was, if you make up the mind of your audience, mm-hmm. they will resent you. Yeah. You know, l- let's show them what we see when we film here, presented in a understated way. Too early. Who knows? What do you think? You make up your mind. Is this something for you or is this just a wacky experiment? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that's where the power of that film, or at least it draws a lot of its power from the fact that it respects its audience. Mm-hmm. And it lets, as this former guest might observe, you know, this is too much about career and not about purpose and a more humanities-driven education. I look at the film and say, wait a minute, I actually think the opposite is true. But mm-hmm. but it invites discussion, which, you know, and you know that firsthand, having been yeah. one of the, you're certainly the person in the world who's convened the most community discussions around that film. And you were early, if not the first to do it. Mm. But it just invites, here's a vision of something quite different. Our goal is just to bring that to you. What do you think? And if somebody looks at that and says, I admire this about it, but I really feel we should do something, you know, on these dimensions quite differently. My answer is terrific. You know, like we go out of our way in the film to say, don't copy this. Do not copy this. Observe it. Remark on what you admire about it. Remark about what you think its deficiencies are. But our goal here is to spark a discussion and encourage you to create the school you want for your kids so those kids in turn can create the lives they want for themselves. That was our goal. And I th- I think the evidence is in how many school communities have screened it quite effectively, which, you know, tell me another education film that's reached that many communities. Yeah, absolutely. And eight years later, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it's well over 10,000 screenings. And in other places around the world, it's almost hard to calculate the number of times the film has been seen. So I agree. It's timeless. And it certainly changed the arc of my life. That's for sure. In a heartbeat, in 90 minutes, it changed the arc of my life and it set me in a different direction. And and again, I, I, I I want to just, you know, emphasize how great Greg Whiteley was in putting that film together, because, you know, there's an interesting story. It took me a long time. I sort of fumbled and bumbled my way to get to Greg. And so I had all these false starts and interviews and things with potential filmmakers, and none of it was really coming together. And in the same week, two people said, you ought to talk to Greg Whiteley, which was, you know, like a good indicator. And I called him. And on that call, I said to him, here's how I think this documentary should go. And I described, you know, interview person X and then person Y and then person Z. And that sequence. It'll be a great documentary. And Greg said, let me just save you a lot of time and money. That would be a terrible documentary. And then I said, are you interested in education? And Greg said, absolutely. It's, I've got young kids. It's really important to us. Mm-hmm. And then Greg said, I know what we need to do. You know, higher test scores, longer school days, summer tutoring. If we can just get those test scores up, everything will be better. And I said, Greg, that's a terrible vision of education. <laughs> so we both had it wrong, but we worked together in a way that we yeah. trusted each other. And what Greg said is just point me in some interesting directions and trust me to put together a film that you will love. And so we set him off on a dozen different places. I got help from Tony Wagner, big shout out to Tony. And I trusted him. You know, I gave him 
maybe this will seem like you know, kind of like inside baseball, but I was the only funder of the film and I gave him complete creative control. Mm. And almost always when somebody's one funder, they insist on final cut override. And I said, it's your film. I want it to be your film. It's my venture capital background. You're like, I support people to pursue what they want to do instead of tell them to do what I want them to do. And I did that. And I told about, if I disagree with you, I will battle you to the ends of the earth. But at the end of the day, please know it is your call and not mine. And that's how we work together. We had a bunch of exchange, including the one I just mentioned, where I said, please be more emphatic. You know, tell people this is really great. No, Ted, that would be a mistake. Mm -hmm. If we overstate, if we get ahead of our skis on that, people will resent it. Here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Okay. I trust you. He was right. Yeah. I just remember like it was yesterday, January 22nd, 2016, when I screened the film to about 200 people and we had set up a really neat kind of seminar process for debriefing the film. Afterwards, it was in a big sort of assembly hall in my home community. And after an hour's discussion, and this was, you know, closing in on 10 o'clock at night on a Friday of a, of a school week, <laughs> nobody would leave. I could not get the discussion to stop. They People were telling yeah. me, go away. We have more that we have to talk about. And I think that's that's one of the real kind of core, powerful elements of the film is that it generates those kinds of conversations. So that's great. Yeah. Yep. And, and it's, it's, it is timeless. I mean, technology races ahead. So now yeah. beating Deep Blue seems like a rounding error compared to what it can do. But I remember we had a, a long discussion and we had you know perspectives that said it's really important that this film talk about Common Core because back in 2014, 15, 16, Common Core was, was in the narrative. And Greg, again, giving him credit, said, if we do that, it will chew up lots of time in the film. Yeah. And my bet is that that within a few years, no one will even remember what Common Core was. Mm. And you will date the film. You will date the film. Let's focus on the fundamentals that will stand the test of time, that will be every bit as important in 2023 as they were in 2015 and in 2030 and 2040. And I think he met that test. Yeah. So as we go to break, a shout out to Greg Whiteley. It's an awesome film. And this is its eighth anniversary. And hopefully there will be another eight years ahead of us of this film being screened. So, so hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Ted Dintersmith. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. 
As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we're back with Ted Dittersmith, former venture capitalist and founder of all the initiatives that fall under the umbrella whatschoolcouldbe.org, including the What School Could Be Global Online Community and the Innovation Playlist. So Ted, back to, in a kind of oblique way, Gibson and Sterling for a minute. So over the past couple of years, I have grown increasingly uneasy, I think, with the idea represented by the hashtag future ready. And I have grown more excited and more enthused by the idea represented by the hashtag shaping the future. So in short, we can't, in my opinion, just prepare learners for the future. We must help them develop the imagination and the agency and will to shape the future and do the shaping in the interests of all humans. So I wonder what your thoughts are about this, but I'm gonna add also, if I might add, generative AI, including ChatGPT, has me thinking, Ted, that there are a handful of shapers of the future and millions of us who merely react to that future when it arrives almost on a day, which is the way the world is, but can't be a good thing. So your thoughts about students and teachers shaping the future, and if you like, your thoughts about generative AI and ChatGPT and how we are reacting to it. You're completely on target and challenging future ready. Kids don't get excited about what's going on in school today when you tell them this will help you in 10 years. Yeah. And the reality is that something we think might be useful in 10 years is, particularly if it's content related, is probably obsolete. When I was Born, which goes back a long time, you know, being able to memorize things, replicate low-level procedures and follow instructions, that was really an important set of skills for an economy that was largely hierarchical and bureaucratic. Yeah. Those skills are increasingly irrelevant. And so I think you erode kids' intrinsic motivation when you cast everything as, trust me, this will come in handy someday. Yeah. Particularly kids have the sense that I'm not going to remember it anyway. Right. You know, when I talk to people who use some, you know, maybe we'll talk later about math, but use some aspect of high school math, they say, well, I had to learn it all over. I mean, like, I, I mean, who really expects me to remember anything from 10th grade trigonometry when, you know, I got into construction arts or architecture or something when I was 30? I mean, like, I just had to learn it over. I mean, I, maybe it's a little bit useful to know it's out there. But, and you look at what happened and what we saw during the, the pandemic where, some kids entered that period, and it was an incredibly disrupted period. There's no question. Lots of hardship, lots of challenge, lots of amazing work by educators to hold the system together. But the kids that were equipped with the skills to manage their own learning, direct their efforts, create and carry out initiatives that could address challenges in their community, it was an incredible opportunity for them to show what they were capable of. And mm. And the idea that that won't come until after 16 to 18 to more years of formal education, somehow we'll just keep having kids jump through hoops, do what's put in front of them, satisfy course requirements, do the required homework, 
in college, satisfy prerequisites and distribution requirements and on and on and on. And now you've got a 22, 23, 25-year-old who's never identified a way to make their world better and created and carried out a bold initiative to do it. We just expect that will fall into place. Yeah, It doesn't. You know, it doesn't. And when the jobs that are out there that have tight job descriptions where you apply and get that job and then are trained to do more or less the same thing over and over for two or three years, and if you do it really well, you're promoted to oversee other people doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, those jobs, if they're not entirely gone already, you know, they're fast on their way out. And you put that all together and just say, wait a minute, like what skills are going to really empower these kids going forward? And the other thing I think that's really flawed about future ready is, I mean, who can predict it, right? I mean, like who is to say what the future is? I, I had a pretty great vantage point on this. Uh, you know, artificial intelligence. Let's talk about that. When I was in graduate school in that building were some of the top artificial intelligence researchers, you know, so that wasn't my field, but, you know, that's been going on a long time. And there was a flurry of view that it was going to be really big. There were a lot of new companies doing it. They all went out of business. They, you know, it was a famous artificial intelligence winter where everything went into hibernation You know, today, uh, there's a lot of misconception about what artificial intelligence is. And, you know, so is a, you know, a software application that that anticipates a few things on your behalf, artificial intelligence, or is it just a reasonably well thought through algorithm that observes data about you Hmm. and makes predictions about what will be the right thing for you to see or do going forward? That to me is more logic encapsulated in software applications. I think what's interesting, ChatGPT is, to me, quite fascinating for for a couple of reasons. One, anybody who thinks, oh, look at this breakthrough, that's what we've got to deal with, is missing the point, right? This is like, if this were a baseball game, this is the warm-up. This is not what it's going to be able to do. And the founder of OpenAI, which is an umbrella organization that has ChatGPT out there, that has Dolly out there, Mm -hmm. he's on record as saying that the the raw capability of artificial intelligence will increase roughly 10x per year for the foreseeable future. You know, GPT-4 will be out sometime calendar year 2023. And so if you say, oh, you know, it's not good at this, or, you know, like I worked, I did eight prompts, but this one has some factual errors in it. You know, aha, it's deeply flawed. Sure, it's got its limitations today and it will have its limitations in a year and in five years and in 10 years, but it's getting better and better and better. And 10X per year, none of us can imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the raw power and then what it can do in the world are different, no question about it. But if basic capability of artificial intelligence, let's just say he's more or less right, can anybody predict what the world will look like if AI is 10 billion times as capable is something today that can write a better essay than most high school kids can write? We have no idea. Is it possible in my lifetime that artificial intelligence will be superior to some forms of human intelligence? I think it's possible. I hope I I live that long. But I think it also begs for, just as I think we need to have clearer thinking about what we mean by artificial intelligence, we need better thinking about what intelligence means, right? Mm. Like the whole discussion is as though intelligence is one dimension. Yeah. You know, and so when the open AI software can outperform most people on AP computer science exam or write a better essay than most high school kids can write or whatever, that's that's a 
I think, a fairly narrow definition of intelligence. You know, if you go back to Howard Gardner's eight forms of intelligence, Mm -hmm. you find things like empathy or leadership or whatever. I think the implications ought to be that some things we felt were important for adults or kids through their schooling to have in place when they're adults are increasingly irrelevant. You know, Mm -hmm. just as, you know, one of the metaphors I like to use is it used to be when I took a driver's training test, I had to know how to operate a stick shift because back then most cars were stick shifts. Well, nobody has to understand how to operate a stick shift car for a driver's license today. You know, it's all been subsumed by technology advances. I look at ChatGPT and I say, at first I'm stunned by some of the reactions. You're like New York City school district is banning it. I mean, like when I saw the idea of making kids use precious time when they're together in a classroom to write long essays by hand to get around chat GPT. At first I thought it was satirical. I thought it was one of those articles where somebody was kind of making up something just to make the point. And of course, nobody would think of doing that. It's like, this is trying to hold back Hurricane Katrina with a boogie board, right? Right. It's like the gift is everybody who's got online access can write essays comparable to what our top high school students can write. And soon they'll be able to write essays that inform are better than what most college kids, you know, everybody's going to be something between a very good and an excellent writer. You know, is the important thing about the challenge of asking kids to write an essay, the form of what the written words, or is it the substance of the ideas? Is the superpower we want kids to develop for those inclined to be great writers, to be able to write things in a distinctive voice, Mm. powerfully, the blow away chat GPT? And is it not a great thing that everybody's now, the floor for writing has just gone from 40 feet below the surface of the earth to 10 stories up. And it's going to go from 10 stories up to 15 stories up to hundreds. You know, it's just going to keep getting higher and higher. That to me is a good thing. You know, what's interesting is when you hear people who love language, you know, speech writers, writers and everything, they are alarmed by chat GPT, but they'll say, it's not like math. Thank goodness we have calculators. So we don't have to do the low level math. When you hear people that love math, they say, well, you can write essays that writing stuff we don't care about. We can just get it done quickly. That's good. But let's not let calculators destroy (laughs) the low level mechanics of math. And you realize like it's there's an arrogance here that says an opportunity for everybody to move up the floor of a skill that can hold you back. Just plopped in our lap. Take advantage of it. Hmm. pivot you know i think you and i traded notes on like somebody saying well this lets us get at creative voice and challenging ideas and going deep it's like why weren't we doing that already isn't this a great thing Yeah, I'm just kind of flummoxed, Ted, because of the reaction. And, you know, what happened in New York City is just one of those reactions. And it's just, it just worries me that we've got so many kids who don't have any sense that they're shaping the future either for themselves or for society or the community writ large. And it just means that everybody's always in reactive mode to whatever is coming along because you had no ownership. And that's that's why I've been thinking about that so much lately. Yeah. And, you know, if I could just add one other thing, because mm-hmm. it defines 
the reason I do what I do is these major advances in innovation are the sharpest of two-edged swords. Mm-hmm. You know, the kid that can leverage these advances that is agile in understanding what they are, which ones are the most useful and how to make the most of them, those kids will be adults that do quite well in this world. Mm. The, the ones on the wrong side of that, the ones that are told you can't use it, that it's really way more important you write your essay by hand to get the Chicago-style footnotes just right, you know, like mm-hmm. those kids are going to be in a world of hurt. And I think we've seen that playing out for slowly over the past 30, 40 years as we've seen more manufacturing automated, more mm-hmm. low-level white-collar jobs out, outsourced. It's accelerating. You know, we're at this inflection point where a lot of the low-level routine jobs are just going to be gone. They're just going to be gone. I have confidence that all kids have in them some superpower. If we redefine the role of school to help those kids find their superpower, make sure they're not held behind by some acute weakness, and put them on their way with learning how to learn skills, agency, intrinsic curiosity, and creativity that they had when they were five years old. Mm. Those kids are going to be off and running. Yeah. And but if we continue to just pound away, you know, we saw this with the reaction after the the national assessment of education progress scores came out, where people were calling for longer school days, longer, you know, sessions with tutoring, more worksheets, more drilling, summer hours spent on this. What one person called for double dose tutoring. Yeah. You know, my point back is you're trying to get kids to be good at something in the math area that photomath does perfectly. If you really care about that, give them like three hours to use photomath and start spending time on how you'd actually apply it instead of calling for endless amounts of hours, trying to be some imperfect version of a photomath app on your phone. It's not only nonsensical, it's arguably criminal because so many kids who come out of school without any usable skills, with eroded curiosity and creativity, with a mindset that I just need to do what's put in front of me instead of create my own path, Mm. those kids trusted us to make good decisions on their behalf and we didn't. And when they end up in a crappy job that kind of comes and goes, when they're largely out of work, when they're in jail or homeless, you know, we have blood on our hands with that. Mm-hmm. So before we go to our second break, Ted, I want to get into the weeds just a little bit about the pathways that our young people take towards particular careers. So back in 2014, I read a book titled A Whole New Engineer, which told the story of the founding of Olin College. And my question has to do with the two apparent pathways towards becoming an engineer of any sort. So the first is the traditional college track, take the courses, including calculus and whatever, take the test, pass out with an engineering degree, and then look to get hired. The second, the Olin College pathway, if you will, is to begin working collaboratively on engineering problems and solutions from the very first minute, integrating math, science, the social studies, and everything else along the way. So in the end, You graduate with a ton of experience as an engineer, but before we throw tradition under the bus, let's note that a lot of amazing stuff got engineered in America before Olin College came along in 1997. So what are your thoughts on the pathway to becoming, you know, be it an engineer or a data scientist or a historian or whatever here in 2023? Engineering is interesting, right? Because it's a, this blend of design thinking skills, invention skills, and 
a lot of important work that needs to be done to make sure the engineering design is sensible. You know, that yeah. is it affordable? Is it within your budget? Will if it's a bridge, will it collapse or will it hold up in a in a hurricane? You know, so there there are interesting, very different sets of skills and perspectives that come to bear on whether something is engineered in a really great, brilliant way or whether it's a dud. I think the shift has come in that a lot of the mechanical things to validate it are increasingly encapsulated in design packages, right? You know, like I go back a long ways on this. And so, so I did some early theoretical physics work that ended up being lead author published articles in major publications, but there were no automated solutions really then. So I had to grind through a lot of this stuff by hand. Now it's all done computationally, you know, so a handful of people develop the computational tools then put everybody else in a position to focus on the more aesthetic. Yeah. And, and I think that w- one of the anecdotes in the book I'm writing, I, I interviewed a young woman who, so visualize this path, and this is the path of her, but it could be the path of millions and millions, is grew up in really poor circumstances in Boston, clawed her way through K-12 school, did really well, despite a lot of challenges, got into a top Ivy League school, her, her declared major was studio arts, very artistically gifted young woman. Mm. She read about this course called Engineering Entrepreneurship. Mm. So she tries to sign up for the course and is told you can't take this course without passing calculus. <laughs> so, so she has to take a college course on calculus. And, and the reality is calculus courses at college will have these big lecture halls full of people and not one of them cares about the course. The professor feels like it's a you know penalty zone assignment and the kids didn't take it in high school. They're not on that math fast track. They don't want to be there. Nobody wants to be there. So she takes the calculus course and surprise of all surprises fails. Now what set her off from 999 others out of a typical thousand is that she wouldn't take no for an answer. Mm. She just kept going at them and going at them and going at them and said, I want to take this course. I don't want to screw around anymore with calculus. Let me in. And they finally just relented. She takes the course. It culminates in people pitching their idea. The winner gets the grant to fund the idea. Mm. She wins. Mm. She wins the competition. (laughs) She gets the grant. She uses the grant to pay for some of the other engineering students to do the low-level calculation. Is that woman an amazing engineer? You know, and she's now involved in a really serious biotech effort. So many people have engineering capability in them. So many artistic kids have the potential to be great engineers. We just put the calculus barbed wire fence in front of them. And for no reason. I've spent... Now, the better part of a decade asking audiences, you know, like who here does a closed form integral by hand professionally, you know, integration by parts, hyperbolic cosine transformations, polar coordinate substitutions. Anybody? I feel like that teacher in Ferris Bueller. Anybody? <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? You know, like no one does it. But in a way that brutally punishes kids coming from the least resource schools, right? The kids in the fancy private schools have a motivated teacher and energized parents that say, take calculus and get a good grade. So they don't have to go through that barbed wire fence when they get to college. The kids like Zoe, trying to claw their way out of a really poor and challenging set of circumstances, mm. didn't get that boost in high school. Somebody said, you got to take it to, to do an engineering entrepreneurship course. You know, somebody that wins among all the different teams has the best proposition, takes it forward. It was like nuts, just nuts. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So, hey everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Ted Dentersmith. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Everyone, we are back with Ted Dintersmith, who, during the 2015-2016 school year, went to all 50 states, visited some 200 schools, and came away stunned by the innovative classrooms and schools he found across the country. And out of that came his book, What School Could Be. So, Ted, in your travels around the country, looking for innovation and creativity in education, both back in 2015, 2016, and then continuing on, you know, eight years later, one place you have been to twice is the super remote and rural community of Hana on the north end of East Maui. And there you visited a program which exists outside of Hana's two public schools. And that program is called Makahana Kaike, or Hana Builds. So let's imagine you're writing an updated edition to your book, What School Could Be, and you have decided to include Hana as one of your stories. So how would you explain the Hana Build program to a listener in rural Minnesota, for example, or one in the heart of, you know, super busy New York City? Like, what does Hana build bring to the national global reimagine education conversation what i was blown away by is that they met students on the terms of the students yeah and the founders of that and the support they got from the the school administrators and teachers was fantastic but they understood that a lot of these kids were really fascinated by the construction arts yeah. And right. mm-hmm. but actually, and I think one of the things we get so wrong in U.S. education is we have gradually phased out almost anything pragmatic or hands on yeah. and focused almost exclusively on academic and theoretical. And these kids that are immersed in that love, that take pride in what they can build actually are the kids in HANA and, and across the country. They're the kids that really learn geometry and trig and retain it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that's the irony, right? They, they may not get as high a grade but they actually learn it. And we realize there's that disconnect between a grade and real learning. Right. But they also develop that competence in the context of doing these great community service initiatives. I mean, remember Rick Ruiz walking me through the number of times, you know, like somebody, a family in a home where somebody's getting to the point where they can't navigate stairs well, or right. they had an accident, they're in a wheelchair for four months or whatever. Yeah. And boom, 
SWAT team from Hana builds to go there and build a ramp, right? And build right. a ramp. And it wasn't a sloppy ramp. I mean, there was a really beautifully designed ramp. One of the buildings on the campus was largely the result of student work. And you realize, like, tell me again what's wrong with this. You're like, these kids now graduate, you know, kids that normally might not graduate are graduating. Kids that normally might graduate and have no path forward have a hireable skill. They've learned that hireable skill in the context of making positive contributions to their community, which to me is a far more important citizenship lesson than memorizing and forgetting that we have three branches of government. And these kids are going to be essential elements of the fabric of that community going forward. And, And I am not here to say every school should do exactly what Hannah did, but I am here to say that every school should find things like that yeah. They'll let their kids develop skills that give them a path forward in life. And one of the things, and it's one of the things I'm working on now, one of my priorities is, it's very early, but it's an initiative where our goal is to equip middle and high school kids with a hireable proficiency that they enjoy, they learn largely on their own, they explore mm-hmm. and refine in the context of making positive contributions to their community, and they leave K through 12 with earning power on par with what most college graduates have. Mm. And when I say that, a lot of people initially are quite skeptical. And then I start pointing to examples, examples like Hannah Bilt, where a kid at age 18, who's got a skill they enjoy that they can use to cover their living expenses and the living expenses if and when they get a family, that they use as a career, but also to affect positive change to make, you know, just volunteer contribution to their community. I mean, what a gift to give a kid. And I can relate to it personally. This is, again, something that probably not said on any other podcast, but, you know, I grew up in, at the time, a kind of a lower middle income, lower, you know, like this was not a rich neighborhood by any means. My, you know, my family's house growing up was like one step up from a trailer, you know, so it was a mm-hmm. little tiny ranch. And my dad had dropped out of high school at age 17, served in World War II in the Pacific Rim, was in six horrendous naval encounters with people blown up right and left. I mean, it had effects on him that we certainly felt as a family growing up um, that we didn't really understand until he passed away. And his career, I call it career, is he kept food on the table for us as a carpenter. Mm. And so I am a huge fan. You know, like he worked hard, He supported his family. You still go to my town and I can walk you around that neighborhood and point to porches he would build for neighbors to the church that we went to where he did a lot of the work for the convent. Like lots of great contributions to the community with those skills. And and he spent a lifetime feeling like a second-class citizen because he didn't have the right degrees. It makes me angry, right? It makes me angry that we will look down on someone who supports their family, has a profession they take pride in, and uses those skills to better their community, and somehow it's not enough. You know, that's wrong, right? That That's all wrong. And we need to honor anybody who comes through the school system and can move forward in life in a way that's defined by purpose and meaning and gives them a way to sort of make ends meet, consistent with the lifestyle they choose, but you know, gives them a sense that they matter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Ted, I look at the HANA Build program and for all the reasons that you just explained, from the very first moment that I became aware of it, it grabbed my heart in a really, 
really strong way. And I think the reason for that is because I had two lives when I was growing up. That one of them was the life in a, as a student in a private school, a large private school here in Honolulu where I live. And I joke a lot about graduating with a 2.2 GPA as if somehow, you know, that's actually a point of pride because there was another life that I was living, which was that constructive arts life. I was building rock walls. I was cleaning reefs, you know, of invasive species. I was building trails. I was doing all of these kinds of things. And sometimes I do feel angry about the fact that I had to just go through those 12 years without really getting any opportunity except for maybe one, a project that was given to me, to be able to, you know, exercise that thing that was inside of me that wanted to build stuff. And so I appreciate that you had the chance to go to HANA and to see that program and to be able to speak about it. That's awesome. That's actually really great. So speaking of, and just a couple more questions before we bring this awesome conversation to a close, Ted, you have shared with me that you're working on another book, your third, your first book you co-wrote with Tony Wagner, and that's most likely to succeed. And by the way, most people don't know that the book actually came out after the documentary, not the other way around. (laughs) We we started writing it the day we had made final cut decisions. We just said, oh, the film looks great. Let's write a book. And yeah, it gets, oftentimes the film gets introduced as being based on the book, but it's, it's actually, we flip that. It's not flipping the classroom, it's flipping the order between book and films. Right. And I've seen, Ted, I've seen people walk around with their copy of Most Likely to Succeed. It's just got like a thousand little post-it notes in it. You know, it's that kind of book, right? People just that. So anyway, all right. So you're working on another book, your third, which tentatively is titled What Math Could Be. So please explain to me, Ted, the kid and adult who hated, hated math and saw zero relevance in math in school and college. What could math be? with the title, which I was pretty set on this great title because it mirrors what school could be. So I'll write a book on what math could be. I'm getting feedback from a lot of people saying, do not put math in the title. I hated math so much that the last thing I'd ever want to do is pay money to read a book about math. Mm. Which is telling. I mean, I'm I'm taking that seriously. So if anybody who listens to this has a great suggestion that doesn't have math in the title, let me know. You know, I sort of toyed around with writing this and The reason I sort of swung into high gear is really a couple of things. I mean, it is the case that resources on your phone, I think a 10-year-old who knows how to use PhotoMath or Wolf of Alpha could get perfect 800 on the SAT math, sort of the top of the list on the state-mandated math exam, probably get a five on AP Calculus BC. You know, like all the low-level mechanics are all right there if you know how to use them. And better, how to apply them. When I interview these math graduates, you know, whether it's a high school kid who's, who's a superstar in calculus or, you know, college graduate with a math focus. And I say, like, just tell me how you'd apply this. I mean, when would you use this? It's like blank stares. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my background issue. You know, I took a lot of math courses over a lot of years of school. So I got a, ended up getting a PhD in math modeling from Stanford. So I estimate I, I must have taken 50 math courses over 21 years of school. And 
The only math I used once I got my PhD done was a course I took in graduate school called The Art of Mathematical Modeling. Mm. And there's Mm -hmm. this whole rich realm of creative, conceptual, logic-driven math that we don't teach because it's too hard to grade. And what really set me off was I saw, you know, that I'm not a fan of the Gates Foundation's education work. I thank them for what they do in diseases, what they did with COVID. There's a lot of great things going on. I think I would not be alone in saying once Tom Vander Ark left the Gates Foundation, things spiraled into irrelevance. Mm -hmm. But their most recent initiative is a billion dollars to boost high school algebra scores. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I can race through the algebra one, let alone the algebra two curriculum. And, you know, adults just don't use this. I mean, you know, like we don't have to know what imaginary numbers are, rational numbers. We don't have to factor polynomials. We don't have to look at, you know, how lines cross the Y. You know, it's like this entire body of low level stuff that had its day, you know, like in the pre-computer era, there were people that needed to know this stuff by heart and be able to do the calculations by hand. You know, those days are gone. But I saw this quote, you know, there's this brewing math war about the way I put it, which most people would be horrified to hear me say it this way, but you have one camp saying kids should be able to go at their own pace through math they'll never use. And the other camp saying all kids should go at the same pace through math they'll never use. Right. And when I saw the director of the Gates Foundation's quote about math, he said, and this is pretty much a direct quote, math is unique in that there is always one right answer. <laughs> I just said, arguably the most what? powerful guy in the world today in terms of math curriculum priorities, to me, is completely clueless. Yeah. You know, like the math that's interesting has all sorts of different answers arrived at with creative, distinctive, fascinating approaches. And so I said, dang, you know, like so many people get burned by math. So many people are told they're not smart. So many people have paths in their life that are blocked because they weren't able to do what we ask kids to do in math. Yet at the same time, when we ask adults, how many use any of high school math? It's like 5%, you know, and they mostly had to learn it from scratch on the job. I said, like, somebody needs to go at this. And like, maybe I'm a a decent person to do this. So Mm. now I'm in book writing mode. I'm getting up every day, super early. Mm. I will get this book done this calendar year. I'm confident of that. And I'm hoping to A, address the, trauma that many experienced when they got told year in and year out how they weren't very smart in some important way because they weren't fast and precise on low-level mechanics that their phone does perfectly. I mean, that's the essence of math performance in schools. Are you fast and precise? You know, it's like, whoa. And so I'm talking about things like, I'll give you an example. How do you estimate something? I would invite people to look at for the next week of things that come across their radar screen that have a number with it, how many of them are an estimate of something that somebody somewhere had to take an approach to figure out how to produce that estimate and their approach might've made sense or it might've been deeply flawed. And when you start thinking of the world that way, and then Mm -hmm. that I invite people to go back in time. So for my discussion of estimation and the body of skills around that, I asked people to think about when they were in kindergarten and the teacher put on the desk a jar full of marbles or gummy bears or pennies and said, come up with a way to estimate how many are in the jar. 
you know, we almost all did that. Maybe everybody did some form of that. How do you estimate something you're interested in? Right. And I just talk about the number of creative ways you could approach that mm. that invite audacity that are basically tied to logic and reason. So it's not fuzzy. It's not everybody's going to have a great approach. In fact, it's the opposite. Some are going to have really well thought out approaches. Maybe no two are the same. And many will be just like, I don't know, like 600, you know, 300. I don't know. And, you know, wild I guesses are not helpful because when you estimate how much it's going to cost you to live in a year, when you estimate the benefit of a college degree that might require you to borrow $150,000, when you get an economic indicator that's based on a deeply flawed estimate or ask about healthcare procedure, you know, like the math that matters is not one right answer math. And so I'm going right at that. So we'll see. I, I'm hoping, I know my audience is not likely to be high school math teachers. <laughs> <laughs> like I, if that's my audience, I'm going to sell four copies of this book. So I'm hoping to reach everybody else who wonder like, yeah, they kept telling me I'd use it one day, but I never did. Mm. And it hurt my GPA. It made a lot of people alarmed about my intelligence. In some ways, it impaired my life prospects. Well, you know, look at how much math you learned in culinary. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where it's actually real and applied. Yeah. And how you probably covered it in high school, but but saw no relevance. So it just went in one ear and out the other. And maybe if you were a deep thinker, but not a fast, agile thinker, you didn't do well in those tests because the tests gave you, you know, the SAT, remember, one of the important design characteristics of the SAT is include more questions than most kids can answer. Right. And, you know, because that'll force mistakes to get more people in the middle of that bell curve distribution. And that will reward kids who spend money on test prep resources. Yeah. You know, all, all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm excited about it. I, I can always tell when I'm energized is when I wake up on my own at 5 a.m. and say, let's go. <laughs> That's my day these days. So two thoughts on this. One is my two cents, Ted, is keep what math could be is your title. I love that title. And I hated math and I would read that book as soon as it comes out. So that's my vote on that. And the other thing is I just wanted to share with our listeners a quick story that back when I was teaching European history in high school a number of years ago, I was one of the first people to start using what they called threaded conversations, meaning what we call them blogs today or, or you know, chats or things like that. And what I was trying to do was to extend the conversations that we were having, the seminars that we were having in European history beyond the bell. And I remember that I set up one prompt, which was the quadratic equation is proof of the existence of God. And that's, <laughs> that's all I said. And it blew up. It absolutely blew up. And you know, the evidence that came into me that it really had blown up, that the conversation was going on completely after class was over was that I got called into the curriculum director's office and read the riot act because the kids weren't doing their math homework. <laughs> the teacher had complained. <laughs> and, and, and the elements of math that were being discussed in this threaded conversation was just astonishing. And so, you know, I just looked at that in my own life and, and thinking that over time, I've actually come to really appreciate and, and almost love math. Even though I don't do math, I just have a much greater appreciation of it now as I look at all of the different ways that it's used in our culture um, or yeah. misused in our culture. Used or misused. And if I do my job properly as an author, and time yeah. will tell, yeah. it, it's partly about 
professional opportunities. And it's certainly aspects of math are really important to citizenship, which I'm getting at. But one of the points I want to make is it is about the mindset you bring to life. And if you believe and buy into the bullshit of one right answer math, if you put kids through six years of secondary school math where there is this right answer and we're going to help you figure out how to get to that right answer, it's very consistent with we have a path for you and now we're going to channel you down that path. It's sort of like this restrictive, follow other way of approaching life. And it's so different if you say, come up with your own bold out of the, like, here's a number. Somebody came up with it. Is it right? Challenge it. You know, like one of the examples I have is we, we report employment and unemployment numbers down to the thousands. So it'd be like 271,000 new jobs were created this month. Yeah. You know, like the error of ours should be plus or minus 500,000, right? You know, it's like, you start to say, wait, like what's going on when somebody tells me X and I know that's just not even close. You're like, yeah. And it just sort of invites you to bring a more challenging, curious perspective to the world around you instead of just hopping in a conveyor belt and writing it down the throughway. Yeah, exactly. So, Ted, at the end of episodes, I like to ask guests to talk about that special person, that giant upon whose shoulders they stand. So, who played? that role in your life? Who was that person who treated you like a friend, a colleague, a mentee, a player, an advisee? Who helped change the arc of your life and helped you find your purposes and your passions? Well, my life has multiple chapters. And I'd say, so if you don't mind, I'm going to hedge a little bit and talk about chapters early and then chapter late. So Early chapters, I was really kind of an achievement hound. And I would say that all comes from my mother. My mother was fiercely competitive. Mm. She was, this is what you're going to do. You know, like she was like an early pioneer of a tiger parent. Mm. And I think that carried through for me for much of my life, you know, where, you know, did I really find deep meaning in school or did I respond to the fact that if I did better, it would be accomplishment? And so I was kind of at in accomplishment mode through, you know, the birth of our kids. Mm. I'd say chapter two, it was not just my own kids, but I'd say children in general have been a source of inspiration for me because, Mm. you know, they're they're (laughs) innocent, right? They trust us to make good decisions on their behalf. And it's the ultimate responsibility of a parent, which I'm sure I've made lots of mistakes, but I've tried to live up to, but I think it's the ultimate responsibility of adult citizens. And so when we live up to those expectations, when we Mm. give careful thought to what we can do as an adults to hand over a better future to our kids, we're living up to the obligations I think we have for this privilege of being alive. Mm. And when we let them down, when we bulldoze through things, when we don't fight back against adults who say we should be banning books or we don't fight back against adults who say climate change and global warming is a hoax, where we don't fight back against people that say a 125-year-old model of school is just fine going forward, Yeah, you know, we will carry that to our grave and beyond. And so in this far more rewarding, considerably less lucrative phase of my life, which probably started about a dozen years ago, I would say it was just the children in my life mm-hmm. that made me feel that I might have a a more 
not that I'm doing that many interesting things, but that at least personally on a micro level, there was a different purpose for me in my life and that I could do more and make a bigger difference than I had done, you know, during a bunch of years of being on the planet. Yeah. You know, Ted, you've actually helped me realize that to a considerable extent, instead of the normal pathway, which would be Emma living up to my expectations, I actually spend a lot of my time living up to hers. Now, the way that she lives her life, the joy that she brings to her life, how much she cares about her community, all of those things, I find myself living up to those expectations, which is an absolutely fantastic thing. Why not, right? Why not? Yeah, live up to the expectations of your kids. That's awesome. So, Ted, thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. We wish you and your wife, Elizabeth, and your daughter and son, Sterling and Gibson, the very happiest of New Year's 2023. And of course, we, we wish you good what math could be hunting as you <laughs> as you hope to turn that book out in 2023. I can't wait for that to happen. Well, well let me turn this around. And I know you're modest, but I'm going to beg you not to edit this out. <laughs> but I, I want to thank you because, I mean, you know, 100 podcasts, 55,000 downloads, you must have done hundreds of screenings and most likely to see. I, I often tell people across the country and around the world that if your community had your own Josh Rapoon, you would be light years ahead. And as you know, I and mean, we both know well that the mission of trying to transform education priorities is very hard work. Yeah. And you've been a constant inspiration for me. And so I keep going, I keep bringing energy to this. In large part because I could say in general, people like you, but I will say quite specifically because of you, Mm. because you are a force. I mean, I always marvel, you know, like when we're doing something, you'll say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I'll say, nobody could pull that off. And then (laughs) you friggin', you friggin' pull it off. And and I, I think that, and I love the fact, you know, I was in that session where, where we had high school kids reinvent the, the resume and the job application. And I'm like, my jaw's dropping. Could you put up in front of all these kids, your SAT scores and your grade point average. And I just said like, what a fearless individual who's willing to share with them that somebody who's had an absolutely transformational impact all across the island. I mean, like you're making a difference now around the world, you know, despite an education system that I think went to great lengths to try to tell you, you wouldn't be the kind of person today who would be changing the world. Mm. And you sort of just stared that down and dang it all, you're doing it. So (laughs) as I said, please don't edit this. I'm like, I'm going to actually ask you right now to promise me you won't edit this out because I think, I think your listeners deserve to hear from somebody with a perspective on what you've done, Mm. that this is a labor of love. These hundred podcasts, the reach you've had, you're not doing it because you're forming a company to sell to, you know, crooked media for a massive amounts of money. You're doing it because of this deep sense of purpose that you can make a difference in the lives of kids all around the world. And honestly, you're doing it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. I promise that I will not edit that out. I'm abashed, but I I make that promise. And I'll just tell our listeners here at the end that the whole point of this podcast now, 100 episodes in, is to elevate the stories of remarkable, creative, and innovative educators and education leaders who are working in the trenches every day to impact the lives of kids and to open the world of education up to them in the ways that Ted has described here over the past hour and a half. 
So thank you, listeners. Thank you for getting us to this 100th episode point and to the 55,000 downloads in 81 countries. And again, thank you, Ted, for your time today. Thank you. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.